Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Mrs. Clinton, I think we need to put the whole story out there right now. We need to get ahead of his narrative. No, no, we can't do that. People are going to think I'm possessed. But you were possessed for like 24 hours. We got the top exorcist in here, and you were good as new the next morning. What I think is, we put the story out there and we say, this happened, we dealt with it. And maybe it will give hope to other people living with the shame of possession. You mean like Ryan Lochte? I don't think we want to go down the road of who's possessed and who isn't. But I think we can say you're going public to help other people who have been possessed. We can say, it gets better. I think that's already been used, ma'am. We can say... What was that, ma'am? Should I call the priest back? No. Did you think, you know, maybe I was still a little bit possessed? (laughs) Because it's, no, it's not like, it's like, it's like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You can't just be a a little bit possessed. (laughs) I should know I was possessed. Maybe just lower your voice a little? So what was that noise you made? You know what that is. Remember in Sedona when I was abducted by the alien mothership? They they put this probe down my throat, and to this day I have this kind of residual I- irritation. See, that's another story where rather than getting blindsided somewhere down the road, maybe we should put out our own statement on it. No way. You know how this campaign is. Whatever we say, it gets spun into some weird conspiracy theory. I need to think about this, but... Whoa, one of those 30-second hysterical blindness episodes. My body is like six flags. Come and get me, John Mayer. Today on the show, more news from the campaign trail. And now he had his coolant flushed and replaced, just to be safe. Colin McEnroe. You should always have your coolant flushed and replaced, particularly in these hot days. So, yes, you know, over the weekend you might have heard a promo for the show saying that I would tell you what the topics were, but there's just no way that we can anticipate what's going to happen in this campaign. We were correct. We're always correct when we say that. We're going to uh, cover both sides of the campaign today. We're going to begin by telling you about a very murky trip that a Washington Post reporter uh, took into the world of the Trump Foundation. It's not like other foundations. It's not only not like the Clinton Foundation, it's it's almost not like any foundation you've ever heard of. Uh, so anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, then, of course, this uh, health stuff did develop over the weekend. Going back to the Washington Post, you know, we think we should get a free subscription or something out of this. Uh, Chris Liz is going to join us uh, from The Fix. Uh, he's been covering the, um, the way that the former first lady and former secretary of State was physically overcome by the heat. Uh, obviously, this has been accompanied by some um, some more news. Uh, we didn't know that she'd also had a diagnosis of walking pneumonia. So all of that is to come. And then uh, lastly, we're going to visit with somebody from one of my favorite publications. I like it almost as, most as, almost as much as I love the Washington Post. It's Slate. We've been having people on there from Slate for a really long time. It's their 20th anniversary. That's not why we're having Julia Turner, Turner the editor-in-chief, on. We're having her on because they're going to do something very unusual this election season. Uh, they are going to essentially, well, it's, it's, it's more complicated than I'm going to make it sound right here, but they are going to, uh, they are going to report real-time results. They're not going to be using exit polls. They're going to be using something else, something so complicated I will not try to describe it. But there's been, since 1980 or 1984, this notion that you shouldn't tell 
the results of states whose polls have not entirely closed until they've closed. Um, they're going to be doing something else. You're going to be able to look at Slate on Election Day and get a different kind of real-time uh, election information. This may or may not turn out to be controversial. I can guarantee you absolutely everybody will use it, uh, like everybody who does what we do anyway. So we want to begin with David Farenthold. Uh, he's a reporter from The Washington Post. Uh, he has been trying to figure out how the Trump Foundation works. The Trump Foundation probably most notoriously has surfaced in connection with the contribution that it gave uh, to an, uh, an association affiliated with the Florida of State Attorney General Pam Bondi at, the, at a time when she was trying to decide whether or not to join a prosecution connected to Trump University. Um, and uh, well, anyway, we'll, we'll sort of pick up the story there. First of all, David Farenthold, welcome to our show. Oh, great to be here. So this, the Trump Foundation, maybe we should back up and say the Trump Foundation is different from a lot of big foundations in some pretty significant ways, including you know, the Clinton Foundation. You know, they have assets in the hundreds of millions of dollars at any given moment. At any given moment, the Trump Foundation, it's kind of more like a revolving fund, at least these days. They get some money, they spend it. They get some more money, they spend it. That's right. It's it's a quite a small foundation for somebody who says he has billions of dollars. The most money it's ever had was three point something million dollars a few years ago. Uh, and <clears throat> Trump, it's, the, the oddest thing about it, though, is that sort of in the world of philanthropy, if you name a foundation after yourself and you're known to be a rich person and you're still alive, uh, people expect that the money in that foundation is going to come from you. That's how it's done. Uh, but Trump uh, did that for a while. But about 10 years ago, he sort of made a change in his foundation and he stopped giving it money. He hasn't given it any money of his own since 2008. And it's that has had other people fill its coffers, and then he gives the money away with Donald Trump Foundation on the checks, and people sort of are left on the impression that it's his money, when in fact it's none of it is. And, and occasionally, it really that's a revolving fund too. In other words, uh, Group X or maybe even another foundation might give them, you know, say five million dollars or five hundred thousand dollars, which then the foundation then just gives away to somebody else, getting essentially all the credit. And making you wonder, well, there was this Charles Evans Foundation, which at a certain point realized that that's kind of what happening happened. Maybe you want to quickly tell that story. Sure. So most of them, the, the biggest gifts to the Trump Foundation have been like Vince McMahon, Connecticut's own Vince McMahon, yes. uh, gave the Trump Foundation $5 million a few years ago. And so Trump gives that money out little bits at a time. But there, there have been cases, as I said, where Trump basically goes to Party A and says, hey, give me some money, takes it, gives it to Party B, and claims that is his donation and not Party A's donation. So in this case, there's a there's a thing in, in Florida, the Palm Beach Police Foundation. Uh, they pay Trump a lot of money every year, like $267,000 a year for one night of renting out his Mar-a-Lago club for a, a ball, um, the charity gala. That's a lot of money, and they're a really good customer of Donald Trump's. But Trump has never given them a dime of his own money. So what he did was he, I think, probably realized, I need to keep this business. I need to give them some money. He goes to another foundation, the Charles Evans Foundation, which is named after a a Hollywood producer who's now dead. Uh, and so Trump goes to that guy, that, that foundation, and says, hey, I'm raising money for this group in Palm Beach. Can you give me some give me some money for them? But don't send it straight to them. Give it to me, and I'll hand it on. And so they give it to him. Trump just takes the money they gave him and gives it directly to the Palm Beach folks without actually adding any of his own money. And then Trump he gets an award. He gets a, a, a big crystal palm tree for his philanthropy to that group without actually having to spend any of his own money or draw any money out of his foundation. It was all someone else's. Right. Donald Trump also is one of the few people in the world who wouldn't say, 
what am I going to do with this big, ugly, garish crystal palm tree? Uh, it won't fit anything else I've got. He's like one of the few people for whom that would not be a problem. So, so yeah, you've got that kind of thing. And you, you tried to find out just sort of in this world of philanthropy and tax-exempt foundations whether that typically happens, whether one foundation essentially almost kind of launders its own, own good deed through somebody else. You didn't find a lot of people who were familiar with this practice. No, it was extremely rare. And they, the people I talked to said it's not illegal, but but they sort of the, the assumption is that if you would never give somebody else your money if they were just going to turn around and claim it for their own. So sort of the you know the free market or whatever you want to call it would cure this. Um, there are instances like Bill Gates's foundation. Right? Bill Gates has a really big, very large foundation full of his own money, full of staff that do good works in the world. And so there's some people like Warren Buffett who say, look. Bill Gates, you've got a good thing going. I'm going to give you some of my money so I don't reinvent the wheel by starting the Warren Buffett Foundation. That's not what Donald Trump has done here. Donald Trump, uh, Bill Gates puts his, continues putting his own money into it. Donald Trump has stopped so that now all the money he gets in and gives out is somebody else's, uh, and the name on the foundation is his. That That's really rare, and the specific one-to-one thing he did with the Charles Evans Foundation, that is rarer still. Um, David Ferenthal, what struck me reading this particular story was that almost any question you asked about the practices of the Trump Foundation, it turned out to have a murky and kind of unsatisfactory answer. So do they always give money to people when Donald Trump says that they have given money to the to causes? You find at least five, five instances where he said they were going to give money and they just flat out didn't. Yeah, this is strange. So every year, charities of the Trump Foundation have to file tax returns to the IRS, and they have to tell the, the IRS who they gave their money to that year. And so in, in these cases, Trump's foundation sent the IRS a list of its donations for the year that included uh, dollar amounts, usually an address, a suite number of where the money went. And then when you called these in these five cases, when you call the people he say he said he gave the money to, they said they never got anything. They never heard of Donald, you know, Donald Trump's foundation. They had, it wasn't like they had gotten gifts in other years, but not in that year. They had no connection at all to Donald Trump. Um, and so in four of those cases, I'm completely unable, at least right now, to figure out what happened. Uh, you know, why did he give to the, say he gave to the Children's Hospital of Omaha when he really didn't? Um, but the one case we do, one of those five cases we do understand, it's a really interesting case. It's this um, case you re- referenced earlier with a donation from, to Pam Bondi's group. Uh, and so what happened there was Trump gives an illegal campaign donation, illegal because it comes out of his foundation, to Pam Bondi's group in Florida. And then what happens... The Trump people say this was inadvertent. They send the IRS a tax return that covers up that illegal donation by listing in its place a false donation of the same amount to a real charity with a different name. So Bondi's group was called And Justice for All. And so to hide that, they listed a gift called a gift to a group called Justice for All that was in Kansas, a totally different group. They listed a twenty-five thousand dollars group to that one, which happens to uh, cover up the hole that the twenty-five thousand dollars to Bondi left. Now the Trump people said that was just a bunch of errors call, uh, done by their accountants. There was no ill intent, um, but that false gift had the had the effect of obscuring a real prohibited gift from the IRS. Yeah, it's a prohibited gift simply because it's a tax-free foundation giving to a, a political operation. But beyond that, I mean, the reason that this is all being fly-specked in a particular way is because of what I said before. Attorney, attorneys general were making decisions about whether or not to prosecute Trump University. She was one of those attorneys general. She happened not to uh, prosecute Trump University uh, and, and, and seemed to benefit from this political contribution. 
Yeah, it's it's a really interesting case. So Pam Bondi, the attorney general in Florida, her office had been getting complaints about Trump University, people saying that it was a fraud. And uh, around her office, these complaints are in her office. People in her office are trying to decide what they should do with them. Should they launch an investigation? While that's going on, she personally reaches out to Trump and asks for a campaign donation to this campaign fund that supports her. Uh, the campaign donation comes comes in on August uh, September the 17th, 2013. Afterward, her office decides not to pursue the Trump University investigation. She says that that was completely unrelated. She didn't even know they were investigating Trump University. But the kinds of facts we would need to know that for sure, like what did she know about the university's investigation? When did she talk to Trump? When did she find out that her office had investigated Trump University? All those things her office has refused to give up. So we have no way really of knowing what she knew when and what she knew when she asked Trump for money. In general, that was a theme that ran through your activities in trying to learn more about the Trump Foundation. Uh, I noted in this article, David Ferenthal, that you would call people up and they would they would hang up on you pretty quickly after saying, nope, 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 not going to talk about that. Sorry. Goodbye. Yeah, it's really strange. So the, two of the bigger repeat donors to Trump's foundation in the last few years, so I asked myself that question. If Trump doesn't put his own money into the foundation, well, who would? Who would you give money to somebody else just so they could claim credit for it? So I called the people who are the Trump Foundation list as its donors. Um, and so there's two that stood out. One is uh, this guy, Richie Ebers. He's a, a ticket broker in New York City. So you know, if you want the best tickets to Lady Gaga or to you know, sit courtside of the Knicks or whatever, he's the guy who, can, who does it. He gives Trump big donations every year, like 450000 in that in that range, which is much more than anybody else has given to Trump, the Trump Foundation in recent years. And the odder thing still is that the Richie Ebers donations are odd numbers. They're not like 450000 even. They're $455,782. Every year a different amount, but all odd like that. Um, I have no idea what that is. And when I called, he wouldn't talk to me. Um, the same thing with this carpet company. There's a guy named John Stark who runs a carpet company who I think is a golfing buddy of Trump's. He knows him from Palm Beach High Society. His carpet company gives sporadic donations to the Trump Foundation. And this is a gift to a charity. Maybe there's a reason for it. Um, but when I, when I talked, he absolutely refused to say anything about it, um, it's, which is odd. If these people are giving to a charity, you think usually they want to say, you know, I gave it because it was Trump's birthday or I gave it, you know, there, there was some reason why they did it and they've been willing to so far. But wait, as they say on infomercials, there's more. Uh, and there really is kind of a lot more here. I mean, one thing we, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about, but you also kind of found the opposite of all this stuff. Somebody who was listed as a donor but hadn't given anything. That was extremely perplexing. So 2013, Trump lists a $100,000 donation, which again for him is a really big donation from uh, a law firm that has offices in his building on Wall Street, 40 Wall Street. Um, I called the, the woman who was the founder of that law firm and she said, I've no, you know, that's wrong. It's completely incorrect. I'm not going to answer any more questions about that. Hangs up. And my attempts to reach her since then have been completely, uh, I've failed to get, get a hold of her since then. So I don't know what the deal is with that, but she disputed that she had given money to Trump's foundation and that amount. Uh, and again, these are charitable donations. They're, they're publicly they're given to the IRS. They, they're not generally something nefarious or something to be, to be um, sort of afraid of talking about, but these folks are really unwilling to talk about them. Um, we've got, but wait, there's even more. So uh, we have to talk about something that's called self-dealing. Obviously, if I start the Colin McEnroe Foundation and I solicit donations and it's all tax-free and all this kind of stuff, and then if I see something that I want... I can't have the Colin McEnroe Foundation buy it for me. That's called self-dealing. But you found several instances where that appears to have happened, where uh, the Trumps have bid on something for their personal use or their personal possession anyway uh, at an auction, appeared to be therefore buying it with their own money, but in fact bought it with foundation money. 
That's true. Uh, we mentioned two examples in the story. Uh, one was in 2007. Uh, Trump is Trump and Melania Trump, his wife, are at a at a gala in Palm Beach, and the entertainment that night is this guy who's the a speed painter. So he comes out and he paints like five or three paintings in 15 minutes, and he does it very dramatically. He paints them upside down, so you have no idea what he's painting, and then he flips it around and he's like, oh my God, it's John Lennon or Donald Trump or whoever it is. So he does that. He paints a picture of Trump that way, and then he auctions him off. So Melania Trump is the only bidder for this, because who else is going to outbid Donald Trump's wife for a picture of Donald Trump? Um, she bids $10,000. The auctioneer says, well, listen, you're the only one who's bidding. You're Donald Trump's wife. Can you up the bid? Ups it to $20,000. So she buys this giant six-foot-tall portrait of Donald Trump, uh, and the, the money is paid for by the Donald Trump Foundation. Which, again, you're not supposed to do. Um, I don't know where the picture is. If any of your readers have seen it, uh, I would love to have it. It supposedly was shipped to one of his golf courses, but I haven't tracked down its current whereabouts. Uh, The other case is uh, the Tim Tebow helmet. In 2012, the very beginning of 2012, everyone remembers Tim Tebow's great run as the Denver Broncos quarterback. On the night that run came to an end, they were playing the, the New England Patriots in, the, in a playoff game. Trump goes to a, a gala in Palm Beach, and they're auctioning off stuff. It's a charity auction. He buys, he gets in a bidding war for this signed Tim Tebow helmet. Now, again, Tim Tebow was losing as this auction was going on. So this was the highest price that anyone would ever pay for a Tim Tebow helmet. Trump bought it for $12,000 and, again, paid for it with Trump Foundation money. So even though in these cases the eventual – the recipient of the money, the person who was auctioning off these goods was a charity, uh, you still can't buy – yourself something a picture a football helmet with charity money you got to use your own money if it's if it's for you and this becomes more trenchant somehow or other knowing that about as you said at the beginning of this conversation that about 10 years ago trump start, stopped putting his own money in this foundation anyway it's not as though not that this would even be legal uh but it's not as though he put his money into the foundation and then bought something for himself he didn't even do that i mean he's buying this crap with stuff that with money that comes from other people um yes. and and to that point um people who have watched the apprentice and i can't say that i've watched a lot of the apprentice but people who have watched the apprentice probably have also probably remember moments of and and you know the thing that you just described is sort of what that moment of high roller magnanimity right it's just sort of like oh yeah yeah you know what i'm gonna do twenty thousand dollars to this charity for this dopey upside down painting of me because uh, i'm a, such a swell guy um and, and similarly similarly there are these moments on the apprentice where donald trump goes well you know yeah you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna make a donation to that thing that you care about or, or whatever and it's kind of a moment for him to be the nice guy instead of the guy who fires people all the time Except that what you found out is all of none of those moments involved Donald Trump's actual money. That's right. We we found 22 examples. So this is on the Celebrity Apprentice, where all the celebrities would pay for a charity. And as you said, often if somebody was getting fired or somebody didn't do very well in that week's task, there was a sad celebrity in front of Donald Trump. He would often offer a personal donation. So he'd say, okay, well, your charity is not going to win any more prize money because I'm about to boot you out of here. But uh, I'm going to give you something out of my own pocket to make it it easier, to sort of soften the blow. Um, We found 22 times when he had done that. Uh, And in every case that I could track down, it was never his own money. And I should say, on air, Trump would say explicitly, this is out of my own wallet. This is out of my own account. I mean, he was making clear this was his money. And why not? Because he's a billionaire, right? Uh, in fact, in one case, Lisa Lampanelli, the insult comedian, actually began to cry. She was so moved at Donald Trump's generosity out of his own pocket. And in every case we looked at, it was not his money. Uh, in some cases, his quote-unquote personal donations were paid by the production company that ran the, ran the show. Like wasn't even related to the Trump Foundation at all. It was just paid by the same people who paid the prize money. And then most of the cases, it was the Trump Foundation 
filled with other people's money who gave the donations. Uh, and in fact, in 2012, one thing we were trying to understand was in the 2012 season, Trump suddenly became much more generous with these promises. And I should say they made for better TV, right? People, you know, it, he seems more likable. There's more drama and pathos in him firing Khloe Kardashian or whoever he's firing if he's also offering a little of his own money. 2012, Trump starts offering more and more of these personal donations. Well, what happens in the Trump Foundation in 2012? A $500,000 donation from NBC Universal, the people who run and televise The Apprentice. So the money that NBC Universal puts into the Trump Foundation more than covers all the money he gave out of the Trump Foundation for these so-called personal gifts. So it's basically what they're doing is using the IRS code for character development. They're basically saying in order to develop this character as this complicated guy who's both ruthless and beneficent, uh, we're just going to throw some seed money into the foundation here. So this is all, uh, you know, I I guess the question that I have at the end of all this. So we've had a much longer and louder conversation, I think, probably uh, about the Clinton Foundation, which plays with a lot more money, does a lot more things uh, all over the world. There. These are, I mean, to whatever extent there are some questions about the Clinton Foundation and whether it creates opportunities for access or created opportunities for access to the sitting Secretary of State or whether there's some way in which it triangulates out and Bill Clinton gets something somewhere down the line. I mean, they're just, it seems to me it's whatever that is, it, it's not the same as this. This is kind of, once you understand that all bets are off, this is, most of these things are pretty easy to understand. I, they are really different, and I think that's the that's the main thing I want people to take away. The Clinton Foundation is a huge organization which actually does charitable work out in the world, um, and there the questions are about, as you said, whether Hillary Clinton um, used her power as Secretary of State to bring in donations or to give do- special access to donors. Uh, the Trump Foundation, so that, the Clinton Foundation is very big, and the, the question is, was it so big that it, it overstepped the lines that she should have been following? The Trump Foundation's main cat quality is it is small, small both in its actual amount of money and small in its moral ambition. You know, it's, it's a way for a guy who feels like he has to give some money away to do it without actually having to give any of his own money away. Uh, and that's, that's sort of what it seems to be in all these circumstances. He feels like there's a time where for business reasons or for TV drama, he needs to give away donations. And he found a way to do it where it seemed like his money, but it actually never was. Now, David Verdol, last question. Um, going through your article, there were some instances in which, or maybe only one instance, uh, in which they really, really got caught by the IRS. It's actually clear they did something they weren't supposed to do. Uh, you seem to have actually found a lot of other instances which if the IRS knew about them, they might have some uh, further questions about, shall we say. But I mean, I think the most of I saw in terms of a fine was like $2,500. Has there been a consequence larger than that that I missed one? Uh, no, that, that actually. So in March, we were, we were the first to report um, this thing where they had given the donation to Bondi in violation of IRS rules and also done some things that had the, had the effect of covering it up. After our story, uh, basically the Trump Trump organization self-assessed a fine. They filed an IRS form that they should have filed back in 2013 and said, you know, we paid an illegal campaign contribution. The penalty we believe for that should be, you know, we read the IRS code to say the penalty should be 10% of the value of that contribution, so $2,500. Trump pays that personally. Uh, but th- I don't want people to think that the IRS has investigated and decided that's all that they needed to, to pay. Mm-hmm. That was Trump's own assessment of what he should pay. Uh, the IRS keeps those investigations confidential until the end of them, and sometimes even at the end of them. 
them. So we don't know what the IRS is doing or if they have assessed other penalties. Today, I've asked the Trump folks if they're going to make any more self-assessments of fines based on the things that I discovered and wrote about on Sunday, and I have not heard back. I'm sure you're very popular. I'm sure they love <laughs> love to see on caller ID that David's calling up again. David Farenthold, great to talk to you. Uh, you've been such a great guest that I'm going to make a personal donation to Doctors Without Borders, which actually is a legitimate charity uh, in your name. Uh, from my, I'll be using my foundation for it. I, I was going to give to them anyway. But um, th- Anyway, thanks for joining us. David Farenthold from The Washington Post. We're going to continue with more Washington Post. We're going to talk to Chris Saliza and also somebody from the Circulation Department. We should definitely be getting the paper delivered here. Uh, but we'll, be, we'll do that after the proverbial this. Welcome back to our Monday Scramble. Uh, we love the Washington Post. I mean, they really help us out so much in these Monday scrambles. But we have to get we have to get the reason we have to get a digital subscription is I'm already out of my five free views. I'm using incognito windows. I'm living living like a fugitive. Um, but anyway, thanks very much to uh, to David Farenthold, a great report on this. And so we try to be fair uh, and we try to cover both sides. Uh, and it's pretty easy to do these days because each side keeps generating generating a lot of news. Um, so for those of you who think that we were incredibly mean to Donald Trump uh, in the first segment. We are now going to talk about a pretty large problem, I think, for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think by now most of you know this. Uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of concern over her health. Last week, we were talking about the coughing. Uh, Then uh, it turned out on Sunday she was overcome, physically overcome. There's a video on Twitter that shows her being uh, helped in a very wobbly and unsteady fashion uh, into a waiting vehicle. Uh, She was at a 9-11 commemoration. Uh, It was a hot and humid day, but it turns out to go a little bit beyond that. Uh, her uh, Since then, her campaign has released the information that her doctor uh, had diagnosed her on with uh, some version of pneumonia, anyway, the preceding Friday, and that perhaps that may have contributed to the way that she kind of wilted in the sun there. So Chris Saliza, uh, first of all, uh, writes uh, The Fix, a politics blog for The Washington Post. If you're interested in politics, uh, it is exactly as the title suggests. You have to have your fix. Uh, and he's with us now. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Uh, I've been listening uh, to Colin McEnroe since I was a teenager. I grew up in Connecticut. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, uh, I, well, I won't ask how old you are now. Uh, and, and my parents are still there. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> presumably they're listening right now. Hopefully I didn't do any great neurological damage to you as you were growing up. No, nope, uh, none. You seem to have turned out just fine. So <laughs> I, I think maybe we need to begin on Sunday. So on Sunday, uh, explain to the best of your knowledge, and this sure. is a little bit complicated because it didn't necessarily happen with the typical amount of repertorial scrutiny. In other words, usually everything that happens happens right in front of the press. This didn't really do that, right? Well, so what, you know, like all things now, um, uh, breaking news-wise, Twitter is your best resource to some combination of Twitter and cable TV, but probably Twitter. Um, And so there started to be reports that she uh, was uh, leaving this 9-11 memorial ceremony early. There were some reports that she had fallen or stumbled or looked ill. 
We didn't really hear much about it uh, because the Clinton campaign didn't say anything about it. Uh, then there was a video uh, posted by some onlooker uh, where she looks uh, as though she's really struggling. Uh, she's sort of leaning on a post uh, as her car pulls up, and as she goes to get into the car, she, she sort of stumbles, falls, and is grabbed by a couple uh, Secret Service guys who help her into the car. We eventually uh, get a statement. This is about 90 minutes later. Uh, we get a statement saying she got overheated. Then we about five hours later, we we get a statement that says, well, actually, she's had pneumonia since Friday, and this is a result of that. Um, so, you know, and again, it's the, the classic situation with, with Clinton, at least. We, we always struggle. She, she tends to be very cagey around the press in every regard. I think they handle the press. Uh, paranoid is, a, is one way to put it. They always think that telling the media anything is bad. Um, and I think you see it. You had, saw it happen with the emails. You see it happen, uh, or her email server. You saw it happen to some extent with the Clinton Foundation and the allegations of pay for play. And you certainly saw it happen yesterday with her health. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we're seeing, and you've got something uh, new up about this today, is, I mean, look, first of all, we should say campaigns, we can talk about whether things are fair or unfair, about whether uh, somebody, whether there are double standards. We can talk about that all day, but really it still comes down to the fact that campaigns involve fixing what's wrong. If you've got a problem, you've got to fix it. If you're, It doesn't make any difference that you're battling, battling Darth Vader and he's a horrible person. You still have to have R2-D2 lock down the thing that popped <laughs> loose. And, and, and this seems to be a problem for the Clinton campaign is that they're not fixing the thing that's wrong, that, that on Friday when they got the pneumonia diagnosis, they, they shouldn't have assumed, which they apparently did, that maybe this is something we could sit on, maybe even permanently, you know. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not convinced that had this thing not happened on Sunday, we would have ever heard about it, uh, to be honest. Um, uh, you know, I think that their natural tendency is a hunkering down, a share only with people what needs to be shared. Um, they have this sort of trust us mentality. With the email uh, server issues, it was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was, well, you can be sure that we deleted all of the uh, only personal messages, all the professional messages were turned over. Well, how do we know that? Well, you're just going to have to trust us. Well, with this, well, you know, why was no one with her for, why did we know nothing about it for 90 minutes? Why were we not told about the pneumonia? Well, you're just going to have to trust us. And, you know, the truth of the matter is if you look at polling, you're, you're finding somewhere between about 53 and 65 percent of the public don't view her as honest and trustworthy. Some of that is because of the long-term hit she's taken with the publicity and the press over the emails. But this, things like this don't help. Their natural tendency continues to always be do less, say less, and then uh, later on, as we've heard um, on uh, on Monday, you know, the, several of her aides have come and said, you know, we could have handled it better, we could have been more transparent, but but you have to do it in the moment. This is not the first time that she's been hit with calls for a lack of transparency. It is the first time as it relates to her health, um, but certainly not the uh, first time ever. ever. So, the you know, John Dickerson says that the problems, the worst things that happen in terms of gaffes or bad incidents are the ones that feed into the worst narrative about you. So, in fact, this one manages to feed into two bad narratives. She's got uh, a bad narrative, whether it's fair or unfair, uh, we, we can set aside for a second, that she's not upfront about things. And then she's got another narrative that's been going on for a while, this whole group of so-called Hillary healthers, you know, who ex initially existed over on the alt-right and the Rudy Giuliani fringe whatever that we want to call that fringe, uh, you know, that, and, and what they've seemed to do here is cause this fringe theory to move more, much more towards That's the right. mainstream. 
If ever, if ever there was a time not to get pneumonia, uh, this past week was it. I mean, you know, the, the Giuliani as well as a number of uh, other less prominent uh, Trump surrogates and conservatives have been pushing this idea that she's sick. She had a coughing um, issue last week on Labor Day. Um, they've been pushing it, but up until Sunday, it was really sort of in the realm of conspiracy theory. Yes, she had she had a stomach ailment in 20, uh, late 2012. She fell. She hit her head. She had a concussion. She eventually developed a blood clot as a result of that. That's all stuff we know about. There are theories of, oh, it's much worse, but there, the, you know, it is really what's conspiracy stuff. The problem is, there for her, there is now a video out there of um, uh, of her looking, uh, you know, at best unstable uh, as she tries to get into this van to take her to Chelsea's apartment. And then there's the added issue of. Um, uh, the fact, the way in which they handled the telling of it. Uh, the, the, the difficult thing here is that uh, I've heard from roughly one billion people on Twitter and via email uh, over the last 48 hours who said, see, we told you she was sick all this time. And it's like, you know, I, I, I'm, again, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, we had no evidence to suggest that she was ill in any meaningful way until yesterday. So uh, d because a conspiracy theory about her health uh, happened to be proven doesn't mean that we were ignoring the evidence. There, the, outside of sort of conspiracy theory land, there wasn't anything really to latch onto. But now it's it's clear, you know, like, yes, yeah, she has pneumonia. Um, and, you know, what, what does this mean going forward? No idea. But I do think it means that her health is at least a minor uh, and maybe a bigger, but certainly a, 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 a conversation in the race. Yeah, I mean, so people are uh, setting it its importance at different levels. Scott L. Adams, the Dilbert cartoonist, who I realize is not the same as Walter Cronkite, said this could mean the campaign's over. This is just not going to go away now. Uh, I, I'm sure the rest of the space in your mailbox, after you read those billion, <laughs> you know, are, are from people saying the other thing, saying, Chris, you have a double standard here. Yeah. You know, Trump has this cockamamie letter from his doctor that reads very much like the kind of thing that he would have written about himself. Now he's going to go and Dr. Oz and talk about yeah, I mean, his medical yeah. condition and that, you know, George W. Bush uh, passed out while trying to walk into a pretzel at the same time. His father puked on the Japanese prime minister and that men in particular are maybe being judged differently from a woman here. Yep. No, no question. Uh, I, I, uh, the, the two sort of responses uh, 24 hours after this are either, see, we told you she's deathly ill or this is nothing. You're overblowing it, and you're using a double standard of some sort. So um, th there is no sort of gray area. There are no people who do not have a hard and fast opinion <laughs> about this situation. Look, um, I think it is absolutely right to point out that if you compare – I'm actually working on something right now that just compares like here's what we know about Clinton. Here's what she's released in terms of medical history, and here's what Trump has released. I mean Trump, who is two years older, he is 70. Uh, she's 68 at the moment. Um, uh, the, the note he released is – to call it sort of a medical record is not really doing justice to medical records. I mean it, it includes in a line, Donald Trump would be the healthiest person ever elected to be to the presidency. Like, yeah, like that strikes me as like a little bit of a specious claim. Like I'm not sure we can back that up. Um, so that's the hard thing here is is that – he has been something well short of a font of transparency, whether it's his medical records or more prominently, I think, his um, taxes. Uh, he's still the only 
major party nominee in modern history not to release his taxes. He continues to say he will if his audit ends. I think that's very unlikely he releases them before the election. So I think you have to point both out, but I would say, look, we're talking about two people who are 68 and 70 years old. They are the two people who have a real chance of being elected president of the United States. And I think, you know, I think voters should have as much information about them as possible. Whether Trump releasing his taxes influences a decision, whether Hillary uh, having pneumonia influences a decision, who knows? It, it may or may not. I'm sure it does for some people and doesn't for lots of people. But, you know, I'm in the uh, uh, transparency business and the, the sort of getting news out there, uh, letting people make their own decisions about it. And I think neither of them can be anywhere near commended for the way in which they've approached that on a variety of topics from health to taxes and everything else. Well, Chris, uh, we're going to talk about the, more about the transparency business in the next segment with Julia Turner. I have to say, I actually have Franklin Pierce's treadmill test records here. Uh, he was a very healthy, very healthy guy. Uh, he was. Yeah, Always Dom- Chet Arthur was extremely good health. Exactly, knows exactly. That. you got to look at the whole span of history. Chris Eliza <laughs> writes for The Fix at The Washington Post. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with somebody who's not at The Washington Post. Just change your face, you know. Every time I think about Trump, I get allergic. <coughs> Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, despite the fact that she has a crick in her neck, and me, Kion Wolf, despite the fact that I've been hallucinating for the last five hours. Greg Hill, who's just know, not himself today, appeared in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sanjay Gupta. Check out our Facebook page, The Colin McEnroe Show. On tomorrow's show, the real story of women in the American military. And now, back to Colin. And we're going to actually release the medical status of our entire team every day from now on, just, to, just so there's no misunderstandings. Uh, this is very exciting for me. Uh, I guessed, it turns out, I didn't realize this, but I guessed 20 years ago, I started reading a publication online called Slate. Uh, not only was I reading this publication, but I was... Uh, hosting a different radio show at the time. I was always looking for interesting, uh, young, articulate people who wanted to go on the radio. And so I started mining it for guests. And uh, so various people over the years, like Dahlia Lithwick and June Thomas and David Plotz and Emily Nussbaum back then, uh, all of them, uh, so some of them actually making their first radio appearances. I know it was June Thomas's first, as it were, uh, came on my show. And still to this day, we book a lot of people from Slate. Turns out they're turning 20 years old right now. That's not what this segment is about, but we are pretty excited on such a day to have Julia Turner, editor-in-chief of Slate and a regular on Slate's Culture Gab Fest podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations. Uh, And and I guess you have some very special things coming up uh, in Slate. Before we get to the thing we're really talking about, maybe you just want to quickly mention what Slate is doing about being 20. Oh, we've got a celebration going up on our site today. You know, turning 20 on the Internet as a digital-only publication, there aren't very many of us who've done that. So Mm -hmm. figuring out how to celebrate two decades in, we kind of got to write our own rules. And we decided rather than look back and and at Slate and ourselves, we thought we'd look forward and at the world. So we're taking interesting events that happened on Slate's Watch over the past 20 years, but that were perhaps overlooked or misunderstood, uh, and re-examining them in articles and podcasts and videos to try and predict what the next 20 years will look like. 
Well, one way that the next 20 years are going to be different is that you are going to cover Election Day a little bit differently uh, this year. There's been sort of a proscription uh, over the last, well, since 1980 and 1984, a proscription against at least releasing the results of exit polls on Election Day until the polls in which the the states in which the polls were taken close their other kinds of polls, the kind of polls where where you vote. And, And it's not that you're violating that particular prescription, but you are going to do something different to provide real-time trending information throughout Election Day. Explain what it is you're going to do. Yeah, so we're partnering with a company called VoteCaster, which will use the methodology that campaigns themselves use to figure out who's winning and who's losing where on Election Day. Uh, The technique that they use and that campaigns have been using for several decades now is to do proprietary polls of uh, voters in the states ahead of Election Day, have a robust set of polling and then to go find turnout levels at precincts and compare those two with a set of analysis that helps predict who's winning. Um, Campaigns uh, such as Obama's in uh, 2012 have found this very effective in figuring out where their strengths lie on election day. So the group we're partnering with, VoteCaster, is going to target select states, six or seven of them, uh, and conduct that polling, track that turnout, and we will publish a set of data on Election Day that shows how the election's going, whether turnout looks strong in uh, Hillary-leaning precincts in Wisconsin uh, and what that might mean about how Wisconsin may go by the time the polls close. You know, there's been a long-standing way in which we kind of salute the flag of thou shalt not uh, uh, present information before the polls close, while at the same time, I think Jeff Greenfield pointed this out one year, like everybody all day long in the press is calling up everybody else all day long going, do you know anything? Have you found out anything? Have you heard anything? Have you heard anything from anywhere? Uh, and, and generally we don't, but given the st- sophisticated state of modern data analytics, we, we can know things. The campaigns do know things. And also people vote earlier, you know, close to a third of the electorate uh, is, is done voting by Election Day. I assume that's one of the reasons that you're maybe pushing against this thou shalt not rule. Yeah, I mean, there's several reasons that I think the media approach to covering Election Day is essentially anti-journalistic and ill-founded. So, you know, journalists do make decisions all the time about information that they decide not to share with their readers, right? They decide that, uh, you know, the information's not ready yet, or they might get asked by the government to withhold information for national security reasons. It's, it is a responsible journalistic decision from time to time to not share information with readers. But you want to have a really, really good reason. You want there to be, you know, the job of a journalist is to get information and share it with your readers and your audience. And if you're taking a different tack, that should be a really well-informed, really carefully considered decision. And the and the current approach, the media blackout of covering how people are voting on Election Day, is not a decision that I think has been considered with sufficient care. It, there's not social science research that suggests that publishing real-time voter information on Election Day has any consistent effect on voter behavior. You know, I think one of the fears that animates the current media blackout is the idea that perhaps if people see that the election looks like it might be going one way in one place, they might decide to make a different decision about whether to vote or how to vote uh, as the day unfurls. Um, But, you know, on the first part, there's actually no social science that suggests that that is true, right? So that's kind of a hunch rather than a really founded reason to withhold or avoid covering what's happening on Election Day. Then, as you mentioned, 
you know, the American approach to early voting has changed radically. Massive percentages of voters in many, many states now vote early, and um, they're also voting in an environment where there's concurrent polling. They have a sense of, you know, what they the polls are suggesting their fellow voters may be doing. And also, they've made a decision to vote, you know, several weeks before all the information is in, right? Who knows what will happen in the couple months uh, between you put your ballot in the mail or the couple weeks between when you put your ballot in the mail and when the election closes. And if we are allowing voters to do that, why should we then withhold information uh, from them on election day? You know, it's it's already not true that everybody is voting at the exact same time with the exact same information level. Uh, so to withhold information from those voters without reason makes no sense. And then finally, the third reason is that, you know, one job of journalists is to uh, help people be cannier about marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And the campaigns that are gathering information like this on election day are using this information to drive how they deploy resources. I mean, there's only so much you can do in the hours that the polls are open, but if you're in a hotly contested state and people are uh, within campaigns are seeing certain behavior in the precinct you're in, you may find you're getting newsletter pushes or text message pushes or phone calls from surrogates um, based on this kind of information, which is possible to get, but which the media has decided not to get and not to share with you. So to the degree that a journalist's job is to make their audience uh, savvier and consumer about uh, the ways in which they are marketed to by powerful interests that have a, a strong desire to encourage their behavior in one way or the other, I think this is also a smart move. Just so that everybody understands what's being talked about and what was the issue uh, for a long time, and it does go back to 1980 when NBC made the decision to call the presidential election earlier because, in fact, uh, Reagan had gotten to 270 votes without the Western, uh, 270 electoral votes without the Western states. Uh, They made the call. Jimmy Carter clearly had internal information telling him the same thing. He actually conceded before the polls closed in all the Western states. If you were somebody, say, running for the state legislature in one of those Western Western states. The theory anyway was, and as you're saying, the social science doesn't really necessarily support this, but the theory was you might get screwed because people would just not vote. But what you're saying anyway is that there's no real reason to suppose that that will happen. Yeah, there's no there's no social science that suggests that that will happen. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing is that to the degree that uh, voters might be informed by information that they get, uh, you know, it, it might make races more competitive. I mean, there's just there's no consistent assumption about how how information, you know, m- might affect the way people think about these things. But the job of journalists is to give people information so that they can make informed decisions. You know, we trust voters to vote in this election and to decide who runs the country and make those decisions. And it's paternalistic to suggest that we know better than voters what uh, what the right set of information is for them to have as they go to the polls. I think another thing that the the, the two articles, one by you uh, and one by Sasha Eisenberg, uh, point out is it's, it's actually sort of a misunderstanding that people have about exit polls. Exit polls are not used by political professionals to uh, predict how the race is going to come out. They actually exist for a different reason. They're kind of part of the after game. People kind of figuring out what the voting trends were, what pushed people in certain directions, which demographics showed up. They, they have much more to do with post-election analysis as opposed to predictive ability. What the professionals do, as you say, and they've been doing it, you know, I mean, not not for the last 30 or 40 years, but like forever pretty much, is create targets in various key precincts, figure out based on past performance what needs to happen this time, uh, have these 
these markers that they need to hit in order to achieve their path, path to victory. If those collapse, they have secondary path to victory. When all of those are collapsed, they concede. Uh, if, in fact, their path to victory works, they can declare victory before every single vote is counted. So really what you guys are doing is really a lot closer to what the political professionals have been doing for a long time. Exit polls, in a way, kind of don't enter into it. Yeah, I mean, exit polling is a technique that was developed for one purpose, which is to figure out what caused voters to cast their vote in a certain direction so that uh, journalists and others analyzing elections after the fact could assess, you know, what factors had really driven the result. You know, was it the economy? Was it the gaff that a candidate committed? What was the thing that was really propelling the votes? Um, however, because of the way they're conducted, it is also possible to sort of jerry-rigged a prediction or projection off of them. And so journalists, um, the journalists who are party to the group that conducts exit polls, you know, get this set of information on election day. There have been different practices over time about how that information gets distributed within newsrooms, but it's been a long time practice at many journalistic outlets that, you know, everybody who's producing the news is looking at a piece of paper that, based off of exit polls, suggests, oh, we think it's going to go this way in this state, that way in that state, and you can sort of hear in their coverage where they think things may be headed based on the way the trends are going. And it's a, it's a coy practice that uh, seems like it doesn't really respect the audience properly. It's also very flawed. I mean, in 2004, the evidence suggested that John Kerry had won the election. If you looked at, uh, at exit polls, uh, they were very misleading. Um, so last question. I mean, I, I guess it's sort of a Robert Oppenheimer question, which is, you know, I mean, we have a tr- tremendous amount of data crunching power now. I mean, we as a society, as a civilization, we do. Uh, we can figure out things uh, at a granular level we never could before. And I, and I guess the, my question is, does that mean we always should? In other words, in, in evaluating this decision, can you do it? Absolutely. You can do it in a way that most people wouldn't even entirely understand with a lot of, without a lot of detailed explanation. So, but I guess sort of the question is sort of should we do every single thing that we can do with the modern ability to manipulate and analyze data? I certainly don't think that we should do everything we can do, but I do think it makes sense to do this particular thing. I think the the set of customs and practices around how we cover Election Day are outdated. They put voters at a disadvantage information-wise as compared to journalists and the people running the campaigns. Um, there isn't social science that suggests there's a consistent effect that is worth trying to prevent by withholding uh, such information or you know, desisting from that kind of reporting. And, you know, right, you, you absolutely, the, the, you, it's not like Everest. You shouldn't do it because it's there. But I think in this case, like, the, the whole premise of a democracy is that you respect the people who live in it enough to make informed decisions about uh, who they want to elect. And we plan to make our readers even more informed on Election Day this year. I know you come from a, a newspaper family. One of the newspaper publishers that I work for, a guy named Mike Waller, said, we're not in the business of knowing stuff and not telling people. Uh, and so it sounds like you're going to tell people uh, things that they really want to know. Julia Turner, congratulations on Slate Turning 20, and thank you so much for stepping out of a meeting. I hope it wasn't a really exciting meeting uh, to do this for us. <laughs> Always happy to step out of a meeting. Thank you. I was going to say, usually if we get you to step out of a meeting, we're doing you a favor. Uh, but anyway, she did step out of a meeting. Uh, we want to thank uh, Kion Wolf for running the board here today and Betsy Kaplan for producing The Scramble. We've got a very interesting show tomorrow about women in the Marines. There's a play about it, but we're also going to talk to people who've lived it.
say one thing, the president say the same. I want you to get in the booth, child, and write in my name. Mrs. Clinton, I really think it's time you told the truth about your coughing. No way. When I ran for president in 2008, I was this close to winning it all until those rumors came out that I had the hiccups for five consecutive days. But that was then. This is now. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> all right. I'll get started on printing Hillary 2020 posters. <laughs>